Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast where we go beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Brent Henson. I'm going to be honest, I've been looking forward to this episode ever since we got it scheduled because our guest today works for the police department in my hometown. Very excited. But before we introduce her, let me bring on our host. When he's not behind the microphone here, you're likely to see him represent Virtual Academy at conferences all across this great land is your host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you today, Mike? Brent, I have to admit I'm feeling a bit old today. Why is that, buddy? Our, our banter before we went started recording, I noted that when we talk about events that we have coming up, almost every single time we include what time it's going to be over and how Man. it's going to affect our bedtime. If that made me feel old. I'm upset. <laughs> Both of us, I think, are watching the, the, the series Dahmer right now. Mm-hmm. That has to be strategically planned so that it, the episode ends before bedtime, because yes. otherwise you get a half an episode. And my notes that I have up on the screen, I have the font size is like 200 because I can't see anything anymore. <laughs> I'm telling you that this getting old is not for the faint of heart, not for the not. faint of heart. So what, what can you tell us about our guest today? Because I too have been excited since we got this scheduled. Well, our guest today is an officer with the Flint, Michigan Police Department. You may have seen her in a few episodes of the Netflix series Flint Town back in 2018. Most notably, she and her son Dion both entered and graduated the police academy together in 2016 before making Flint history as the first mother-son duo to join the department. Please welcome to the podcast... A woman who promised me she would patrol my parents' neighborhood before we recorded this podcast, <laughs> Officer Maria Reed. How are you this morning? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Maria, uh, just, just so our listeners understand uh, our history, uh, brief as it is, you and I met at a class last year that you were attending and I happened to be teaching and, and you came up and talked to me and the rest, they say, is history. Yeah, it sure was. It's one of those things. We're going to talk about the story that you told me later on in this episode, uh, but you made an impact on me. Brent, I've told you I am constantly aware and amazed at how brave and how dedicated the people that we get to talk to on this podcast are. And Maria is no exception. So, Maria, I have to tread carefully here because uh, I want to make sure that I don't I don't imply things about you that may may not be true. So, uh, first of all, tell me, how is it that you decided to get into the law enforcement career field? What drove you to this profession? Well, it's something I've always wanted to do since I was little. I actually wanted to be a canine officer. I used to watch cops and they had the like little canine officers. And I always, I've loved dogs. I've had dogs growing up. And right now I have three German shepherds and I just love dogs. But had my two oldest boys at a young age and I lived with my mother at the time. And then I got my own place and um, told my parents I wanted to go into law enforcement. My mom said, well, if you get killed, who's going to take care of your kids? Because I've pretty much raised all of you guys and I'm done. So <laughs> that's how that's blunt and harsh. <laughs> well, I love my parents and that they raised us, especially me and my sister, because we were the two oldest to be very independent and not to depend on anybody else. So having kids at my age, I 
at the time, I grew up really fast. So anyways, I thought, okay, well, I'll wait till, you know, they get a little bit older and stuff. And then um, when they were four, they were three and four or four and five, I believe, I had an issue where some guy was stalking me for three years, still have no clue who this guy is. One of the incidents, he had caught me in my garage just as I got home. The boys were in the car and he held a gun to my head and he pulled the trigger. When he pulled the trigger, it just clicked. My And that was in front of my boys and my oldest one, Dion, he still remembers it, you know, to this day. Corey doesn't have, you know, too much of a um, memory of it. At that point, my life just stopped. I was terrified of guns. I was was like, there's no way I can become a police officer at that time. So moving forward, I went in to work as a dialysis tech in the medical field for three years. And then I went into work in EMS, uh, went to EMT school, worked for several different companies and ended as a dispatcher. I wasn't able to be on the road due to a knee injury that the doctor said if I continued after my surgery, you know, squat and lift like we have to on the daily basis, lifting patients and stuff um, on the cot that I would blow my knee out and need a total knee replacement. And I was in my early 20s at the time. And I thought, yeah, that's not going to work either. So I was in EMS for 11 years. And then I know it kind of sounds crazy and funny, but I looked at my student loans and I had went to college. <laughs> I looked at my student loans and I'm like, start off with nursing school. Then I, then it had to do, you had to do like two years of full-time internship. And I'm like, I can't do that. Cause I got to work. I got you know, two kids to support. So I said, I can't do that. And then I went down to surgical technician and then I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And so I'm looking at him like, I've got all the student loans that I've I've took out. I've got student debt. And I'm like, it's not what I want to do. Law enforcement is what I really want to do. So I took it upon myself. I posted a thing on Facebook and an officer from um, another department stated that he's a range instructor and he could also hook me up with somebody else that does range instruction and could get me some lessons and stuff and kind of get me over that fear of guns and stuff. He sent me like program thing through my email and I was able to watch some video on guns and kind of understand them and how they're used and so forth. So then I ended up going through firearms training and I got over my fear of guns. So then I said, okay, I'm going to go to the academy, but I'm going to lose weight first. I, at that time, I was like 190 pounds, and I was like, I got to lose weight. So I worked hard and lost weight, lost about 50 to 60 pounds. And after that, went ahead and went through the M. Coles reading and writing and passed that, and then the physical. And I was like, I'm definitely going to do law enforcement now. It's really where I want to be, where I want to do. I've had some stuff that has happened previously when I was younger that um, those people never really faced any type of criminal action. And so I was like, I'm going to be that voice for the people who they weren't able to get justice for their. You wanted to be a voice for the voiceless, basically. There you go. Let me take you back for a second to that stalking thing that you were talking about. Did that get reported to law enforcement? Yes. Yep, it did. And without naming names of agencies, how would you describe that interaction that you had with that agency? Was it positive? It was It was positive. It was positive. There was, at the time, the one female detective that was ahead of the case, she was the OIC at first. She kind of made me feel like it was my fault because she was asking questions like, you know, did you turn somebody down? Did you lead somebody on the wrong way? Stuff like that. And at that time, I felt like I was being blamed for it. But now being a police officer, I understand why 
she was asking those questions. It has nothing to do with trying to re-victimize that person or make them feel it's their fault. It's just there's certain things that can lead to somebody doing something like that. And so they just want to get a background and find out you know, where they need to start at as to why this person's doing what they're doing. I think that's a great point right there. Oftentimes the, the discord, for lack of a better term, that occurs between law enforcement and the public isn't necessarily because somebody's doing something wrong. It's because there's a misunderstanding of the context or the motive behind what's happening. And, and perhaps right. as a profession, may, maybe we need to do a little bit better job of explaining those things. But too often we, I can't divulge that information. There's an ongoing investigation. <laughs> or, you know, I, I can't reveal our, our methods of operation here. Well, you're having to right. educate the public on why you're doing certain things. I mean, I'm a cliche. I watch a lot of crime shows, so I understand why they're asking those questions. But to Joe Blow on the street, they're like, why are you accusing me? I'm the victim here. And I think that you're right. right. That's where the discord between the public and police comes in sometimes, I think. Right. And it, it happens today when I'm, when I'm working. I have, you know, I have to ask certain questions like that, too, to try to find a starting point of where I need to start at to see why this incident occurred or the events took them to whatever unfortunate reason why they called 911. And I, I have to explain to them why. In so many cases, people think that we're going to focus on this little microcosm, this little bitty sliver, this event that occurred between you know 2.42 p.m. and 2.47 p.m. Right. The, the event isn't just about those five minutes. It's about everything that led up to it. And in many cases, it's about what happened after it that provide the information that allows the criminal justice system to do something about what occurred between 242 and 247. Right. So you, you had a positive contact there. But I do have to say that, uh, uh, and Brent, uh, we talked about this in, in a couple of our episodes. I admire your grit. I, I admire that perseverance that, that you made this decision, but you recognize that you had other priorities, but you never let it die. You did what was necessary. That had to be incredibly hard after what happened to you to go then and say, hey, before I can even consider this career, I have to get over this fear of guns. Right. And the instructor who did my firearms training, I was terrified to even I have a, one of my best friends. She's, you know, a, a deputy and she'd always come over and visit or whatever. She'd had her, her gun with her. And I was always, I felt very uncomfortable and had anxiety every time she's around. He first had two guns out and he laid them out. And then um, he assured me and showed me that they were both unloaded. So he's talking to me. He's telling me to, you know, lay my hands out. And I'm like, okay, was he going to hold my hand? What is he going to do? And he's talking to me and he's just talking to me about, I don't recall what it was, but it was just everyday life. He's just talking to me as he's talking to me. Unbeknownst to me, he had laid these two guns in my, each of my hand and I'm still talking to him. And he says, look down. And I'm like, huh? He said, look down. And I looked down and I had a gun in each hand and I looked and I immediately, my anxiety went up and he said, you're holding them. And I looked and I was like, you tricked me. He's like, but you're holding them. <laughs> and I said, okay. He's like, that's a start. You're holding them. He said, first, you didn't even want to come in the room where these guns were at. You didn't want to be near them. He said, if I held them, pointed them, even if it was, you know, away, you, your anxiety went up. You could, you could see it. And he said, now you're actually holding them. And he says, you're shaking a little bit, but you're holding them. And I'm like, okay. So that's when I thought, okay, if I can overcome that, then I can overcome whatever else comes after this. And so I did pretty good. 
passed it. I appreciate that that type of perseverance because it's so lacking in, in society today. And unfortunately, it's lacking some in our profession. When, when hard times come, we've got people that are unwilling or, or don't believe that they are able to work through that. So I appreciate that. But you eventually, you, you made the decision, you go to the, the police academy. Yes. You go to the police academy and, and Brent talked about it in the introduction, but you had a really special classmate, didn't you? Yes, I had my son, Dion. <laughs> no, I want to be very careful here. Okay. I am not calling you old. Okay, so let's just throw that disclaimer out there. Uh, But would it be safe to assume that you were older than most of your classmates? I was, but I was not the oldest as I thought I was going to be. And that's important right there. There were three other classmates who were males that were older than me. I was so happy and so excited. (laughs) I was 37 when the city of Flint police hired me. When I actually went through the academy, I had already turned, before the academy started, I turned 38. So I was 38 when I started. And um, these other guys, I won't mention names or anything, um, but they they were in their 40s. So mid-40s, one of them. So, so if he hears this, he'll know who, who I'm talking about because him and my son used to tease each other because my, my son was the youngest cadet in the class. And I believe he was 18 or 19 at the time. And he was the youngest. And this other male was the oldest. And so they would tease each other. Uh, he, there was one point he was standing up in the back. My son was standing up in the back of the class. They said, if you're tired, stand up, you know, blah, blah, blah. So Dion stood up in the back of the class. He had the book in his hand. And well, he kind of fell asleep as he was standing and the book fell. <laughs> and... <laughs> And that uh, particular older cadet had mentioned something about, oh, he missed his breastfeeding this morning. Oh, so, you know, he's, he's not fully awake. <laughs> and there was a couple times where <laughs> I, I don't recall if we came back from lunch or came back from some sort of training we did. But they were in the room and this particular cadet was uh, older cadet was looking for something on the floor. And my son said, what are you looking for? A piece of your hip? <laughs> <laughs> They had fun together, so they they made it pretty comical. How would you describe that that going through a police because a police academy in most cases it is a stressful event because you've yes. got the physical stress, you've got the academic stress, you also have the stress that if you don't pass, you're not going to have a job, and you wasted all that <laughs> all that time and energy. How would you describe that? Was there competition between you and Dion? No, not at all. Dion and I, when we before we um, the academy started, we both sudden you know we're going to be co-workers and classmates because we were both were hired by the city of flint and it wasn't mom it wasn't son we were just going to stay you know separate as in it's a business relationship at the academy and then at home we're family a lot of people wouldn't let us do it that way they were always oh mom son or you know blah 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 but um when it came to having to pair up for partners we paired up with other people and so we didn't pair up with each other you say that and and in my head i'm thinking yeah but still that's your son there's got to be some layer of worry somewhere in your mind when he's out on shift there has to be you know what there is at times there, there is to an extent, but I know that Dion works out every day. He's five foot six, but he's got lots of muscle. Standout football star. I mean, he's an athlete, right? Yes, yes. And he can handle himself very, very well. Very athletic. 
And so I know he can handle himself. Do I have that fear every now and then? Yes, I do. Um, but I can't let it consume me or else, you know, I'm going to be a nervous wreck all the time. And his athletic ability helps him to get through his shift every day by being able to do what he has to do physically, mentally, and emotionally to, to come home to his wife and kids. Well, Maria, I'm going to have to uh, confess here that you and Dion are considerably more mature than perhaps me and some of my friends were in the academy uh, because uh, th there were a couple of us from the same agency in the, the academy and it was a competition. I mean, whenever there was a test and they posted the scores, you know, up there seeing who's doing it and you're kind of, you know, posing as you're walking past them. If you got the highest score, if you didn't get the highest score, you know, you're kind of avoiding them. So I, I have to say that you did much better than we did because it was it was cutthroat. Excuse me. There, there was two other um uh, recruits that were hired in with us. There was four of us total that went through the academy together. So the other two, yes, there was some competition. But with Dion, I was more like, yeah, he can do this. And there was times that we were practicing running the 15 lap, half mile, whatever it was we had to run. And Dion's just, he's just running around, not breaking a sweat. He did all 15 laps, no sweat on this kid whatsoever. And the rest of us, you know, there were some that were in their 20s, but we were all dying. I mean, sweating and just like, oh my God, my legs feel like rubber. He's just running like it ain't nothing. And we're like, holy cow. That's how people get a blanket party, just saying, showing yeah. off like that. <laughs> what he say, what, Bentley High School, Adrian College, is that correct? Bendel. Bendel, Bendel I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's our. Bentley's his rivalry, so oh, I'm then I just set off. <laughs> yeah, well, well, way to go, Sorry Brent. Good that. job, buddy. Yeah, yeah, no, it was Bendel High School. My all my kids went to my two boys went to Bendel. My daughter's currently in Bendel High School. Yeah, we just we just lost a listener. Just got somebody unsubscribed <laughs> because you used the wrong high school. Good job, man. <laughs> Hey, what, what, you ended up graduating from uh, the police academy, yes. and now you're, you're you're doing some work pretty early in your career. Some uh, a TV show came to town. Yes, that that is the Netflix series Flint Town. Now, it, you said you said that that you used to watch cops and you love the canine. Yes. What was it like being on the other side of the camera? How was that experience for you and your partners? It was, um, I don't know, some people enjoyed it. Some didn't want to be, you know, videoed. Some people might laugh at me. And anybody who knows me knows I'm like, I don't like to go in public without makeup. I don't like to have, have my hair done. And when they were filming us in the academy, I'm sitting there like, I have no makeup on. My hair's pulled back. I look like a little boy. I'm like, I look horrible. It was weird kind of having them around, but if you've watched it, you could see we just kind of like, whatever, you know, it's everyday life. And they followed my son around a lot. They went to his house, you know, they followed him around to a lot of different places and was at his house when he woke up in the morning. And I'm like, no, there ain't no way they're going to be doing all this. No way. Now, my daughter, who's 15 now, at the time, I, I believe she was eight or nine or something, but she's this big, you know fanatic when it comes to YouTubing and TikTok and all that stuff. And she loves to do videos. She loves to be on camera. She loves to do a lot of stuff. She was, you know, a little cheerleader and stuff. And she would always say, are they coming to our house? Are they going to come to our house? And I'm like, no, they're not. And she's like, 
well, well, let me know when they come to our house so I can, I can be ready. And then she would, sometimes she would say, well, are they going to go to Dion's? Can I go stay night at Dion's and be there? And I'm like, this show is not about you, kid. <laughs> well, and here's another thing that I found fascinating. So they're filming this Netflix series between November 2015 and early 2017. So not only do you have the stress of going through the academy and joining the department, You've got a film crew following you. That's just got to be added stress. Or were you fine with it? I I was okay. I just had to kind of, I think, watch my my mouth. Everybody <laughs> says, you know, you're, you're small. My dad always said, you know, dynamite comes in small packages. But it's my mouth that normally will either get me in trouble or get me out of trouble. And um, there were a couple times where we were at a couple calls and I kind of snapped at somebody and and cuss a whole lot. If I get upset, I will. The F word comes out a lot. You're from Flint, though. That, and I, mean, that's... I know, but it was for a television show, you know, and even on cops, you don't see a lot of the cops cussing and they would stop and they were like, Reed, you can't say that. And I'm like, There's a difference between shouldn't and can't because believe me, I can. Yeah, it happened a lot. It was, I, I heard a lot of Reed. We have to cut this out now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. But you know what? I read uh, a quote, something you said. You talk about the words that you use, and I found it really insightful. It was the fact that you listen to people. If you go up to someone and they're upset and they're, you know, something just happened, you'll try to diffuse it by just not talking and listening to them to try to bring things to de-escalate. And I thought that was a great way of going about your police work. And that's exactly majority of people um, that we come in contact with, a lot of the citizens, a lot of them just want you to hear them out, hear what they have to say. Working in the city of Flint, we do have a very high call volume. Yes, we are very low on um, officers, but I think we do a pretty good job and make the best that we can out of it. And there's some times where we're, there's maybe seven or eight of us on the road to patrol the whole city and we got all these calls and sometimes we don't have the time to sit and be able to let these people talk. But I find that when you do, it actually goes a long way with that person and their perception of officers, especially with the city of Flint. They know that we care and we're actually going to to listen. And that's generally what people want to hear is they want an officer just to listen to what they have to say and not cut them off and say, well, I'm not worried about that or whatever. Now, there are times that people will say stuff that happened a week or two prior and we're like, okay, let's get to what happened today. Then if you find that, you know, there was something else that led up to today's event, why they call 911 that occurred from two weeks ago, then We'll say, okay, this stemmed from this incident, and now we're here today because of that incident. So they, they just want to talk to somebody. I think that's a human trait. People want to be heard because when you're heard, you're valued. And it right. doesn't mean I, ha- I have to agree with you. I just want you to, to take the time to listen to me. And that, that's perhaps a skill that is lacking not only in law enforcement in some cases, but in society as a whole. Right. That we, we just don't do a good job of listening to each other. And listening doesn't mean you have to agree again. It just right. means that this person has some input and that input is important whether I agree with it or not. Right. Exactly. Now, I'm going to point something out because as a result of you appearing on Flint Town, that created another commonality between you and Brent. And Brent doesn't like to talk about this too much, but no, no, as I like a result. No, no, I like to talk about it. Just, you know, I- <laughs> 
I don't bring it up <laughs> that often. Tell everybody what the common characteristic you also have with Maria. So when you have podcasts, you're allowed an IMDb page. So we both have IMDb pages. You can look me up on the Internet Movie Database, and you and I both are listed. So that's our common. Are we really? Yes. <laughs> Although you have a picture up, and I had a free trial, and I had my picture up. Once my trial ended, my picture went away. So. <laughs> <laughs> what picture's up of mine? I haven't seen it. It's it just, it's just, I think a still from from that Netflix put up. I think probably. Oh, okay. I, I, I would just maybe suggest that that you turn your daughter loose on to developing further content on that page uh, because I think <laughs> that she she might be the perfect person for that. But I had to point that out because I too am proud of Brent's page. <laughs> so it, it's one of those things that when we talk about reality shows like this right here, it's kind of like this podcast. It, it's a chance for people to get a behind-the-scenes look at what happens in, in our first responder field. But again, it, sometimes it's lacking context just simply because you, they record an eight or a 10-hour or 12-hour shift and, and they've got to cram it into a 30-minute episode. I want people to recognize, and that's the purpose behind this podcast, to recognize the outstanding work that is done by our people on a day-to-day -day basis. Not to beat a dead horse, but in Flint, it's being done under tremendous pressure because of the call volume. There are budgetary issues that cause issues for you and the people that you work with, but you guys still show up and do a great job. And I think that's fantastic. I love these shows that show that. How did, how did the community react to the show? I haven't had any negative feedback from the community in regards to the show. I don't know if other officers have or if the upper command staff had any negative feedback, but I didn't. It was still to this day, there's people that say, I know you from somewhere. And I'm like, yeah, no, you don't. And I'm like, yes, I know you from somewhere. And some of them will say, oh, you were on that Netflix show. And I'm like, no, that was my twin. And they'll say, no, it wasn't. And I'm like, yeah, I'm caught. I had one particular officer that I was training. I think it was a year or, year or two after that show aired. I think it was a year after the show aired. We were at this one house and there was a domestic dispute between, it was just verbal. And so the the male was having an issue with his boyfriend. Well, they both came out. We resolved the whole thing. As we're sitting there, I'm letting him do his daily. Next thing you know, the guy comes running out and I'm thinking, crap, we should have freaking left. He's coming to complain <laughs> again. And they got into an argument. And so I'm on the driver's side. My officer I'm training is on the right side. And he comes in, he said, and he has this piece of paper and he hands this paper and pen to my rookie and says, hey, he said, hey, could you have her sign this for me, please? I just want her autograph. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So he said, oh, sure. He hands it over to me. I'm like, God, be kidding me. So I signed it or whatever. And I looked at him. I'm like, I don't want all that attention. <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of people sit there and they'll, they'll ask, you know, you're a celebrity. You're a celebrity. I was like, no. One, I wasn't on the show enough to be considered a celebrity. Two, I said, if I was a celebrity, I would have gotten paid. And I did not get paid. I got paid by the department for actually working, but we didn't get paid for that. So yeah, Netflix didn't chip in. Not a celebrity. For context, you know, Flint was a booming town with the auto industry. And then the auto industry left. A lot of people left. And you guys on your department, what you're faced with is correct me if I'm wrong, a lack of officers. And that's why those call times, it's hard to get out to those calls because you just don't have the man force anymore. Is that correct? 
Correct. Correct. Yep. And you guys, you've even put incentives in place to try to get folks to come out and and try to build up your your uh, your police force. Yes. Yep, they have. And, and, you know, Maria, you know this, that this is almost a a profession-wide issue that's going on right now with the problem with staffing levels. It's concerning because there were a lot of people that were hired that are, like me, much older than you. But they got hired under the COPS grants in the the 90s and the early 2000s. And now those folks are getting to retirement age. We're seeing all these people that were hired under the grants that are retiring and they're not being replaced but the call volume doesn't change. The, the expectations of the citizens don't change. And the ones that are left, like you, have to find ways to address that. It's got to be incredibly challenging and maybe even frustrating at times trying to meet those expectations with the limited resources. Yes. What are you seeing from the people that, because you're an FTO now and you're doing some training, what, what, what are you seeing in the young people that are coming in the profession of your agency? How, how would you describe those folks? Very eager. The majority of the officers I've trained, they want to learn. They're eager to get out there. They're very, very proactive. And definitely that's what we need. Unfortunately, I mean, this is my opinion, um, and there's some that feel the same way in our department and some are like, well, we need the, a proactive unit and stuff. But the problem is we don't have enough officers to be so proactive because of the call volume. Now, in the wintertime, our call volume does decrease. Generally, it does. I can't the last couple of years with COVID because everybody was stuck inside. Our call volume did, didn't change too much in the, the winter versus the summer. But generally, call volume in the winter is less than it is in the summer. So then we have more time to be proactive. A lot of the younger officers that are coming in, they're ready to get out there and they just want to work. And I've had a few officers I've trained where the first day they were with me right out of roll call. Normally, you know, the first few days or first week is kind of more of observing a couple of my rookies that I've had to train. First day of roll call, they had a shooting or stabbing and they jumped right in like they knew what they were doing and if they didn't they didn't let anybody else know that they didn't know what they were doing they they did what they were supposed to do and what they were trained to do and what they're they're there to do i will say it again i think that a lot of times new people get bad raps you know because they they do want to get out there and get involved in things that perhaps they're not ready for but i i just think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to willingly come into this profession right now because it, it seems like the profession is under attack. We've lost the, the the benefit of the doubt with our communities. There are just all these negative reasons. There's plenty of reasons not to get into the profession, yet these folks keep coming and, and right. they go out, like you said, and, and the first, first call, they go out and they do what they were trained to do. And I just think that that speaks highly of the quality of people that we're attracting right now. And I right. know that Flint gets a lot of bad rap, you know, especially with the water and then the crime. But last time I was there, I went downtown and the downtown area is amazing the way they have built that back up and to see and hear from my friends that the things that they're doing to build the town back up. Yep, they are. There's a lot of new things downtown that they're doing and something new is going up all the time. So they're they're trying. Hopefully the, the end result of that will be less crime. Uh, there will be increased revenue. So there, there's additional officers that's going to make everybody, not just the officers, but it's going to make the community safer. 
and more right. vibrant and more attractive about all those things that that you want in a community yes stay connected to the between the lines podcast by visiting our website at between the lines with virtualacademy.com you can listen to all available episodes get detailed information about guests and find links to all of our social media accounts including facebook instagram twitter and linkedin you'll also find links to where you can hear episodes using popular podcast providers like spotify apple podcasts and more new episodes available every tuesday morning at between the lines with virtualacademy.com I do want to kind of transition here and I want to talk to you about a specific date and that date was April 9th, 2021. Yes. This is kind of the story that you share with me and so I just want to walk through it with you if we could because on that date you received a call. You were dispatched. I think it was an attempt robbery. Is that correct? Attempt robbery. Yes. Okay. What, what do you remember about the dispatch before you get there, before anything else happened? What do you remember about the dispatch itself? Well, originally the call, I was on my way to a shots fire call that was on the north end of Flint. And as I'm approaching the intersection of Chevrolet and University, they air out for um, a 911 hang up at a local gas station that we're called to all the time for panhandlers and disorderlies and stuff like that. And when the call went out for a 911 hang up at that location, I was just passing, which is just a couple blocks down the road. I was like, ah, you know, it's 911 hang up. It can wait. I'll go check the shots fire, make sure, you know, no house or anybody got hit or whatever. So then they changed it within maybe. 10, 15 seconds later that the caller called back and said that, you know, some guy attempted to rob them. I was like, crap, I'm right here. I can't just not go. So I answered up for it. As I'm going there, that's when they had said that the male had um, an AK-47 and he had fled in a, I believe they said it was a red vehicle. I think, I believe they said he went westbound on um, university, which was, I was coming from West going East. So I was like, okay, well, I'll look for it or whatever. I didn't see it at the time. I think it's important for our listeners to understand how often it happens in this profession where a call is dispatched is one thing and th- that elicits a-, a certain response from you, but then all of a sudden it changes. Sometimes right. it changes before we get there, uh, but sometimes it doesn't change until we get there. Right. It's it's one of those priming things, you know, because you know, 911 hang up. Yeah. Another panhandler. It just sets us up. So you're driving now to this call that you've answered up for. Uh, Did you make the scene? I made the scene. Um, Prior to me getting on scene, they also aired out that the clerk had locked the doors to the the convenience store, to the gas station. Um, So when I get on, they also ask for backup. And that's how um, my partner, who was coming from the north end, um, aired that he would come and back me up. But I get there first. And as I get on, I see that people are coming in and out of the convenience store and I don't see the red vehicle there. So one, I know the threat's gone because the vehicle is not there too. You have people coming in and out of the convenience store. If the threat was still there or somewhere around the doors still would have been locked. Nobody would have been coming in and out. So I got on scene first and I went inside and talked to the uh, clerk who was obviously, you know, upset and um, stated that this guy had tried to you know, attempt to rob the store. I aired out, he said it was a red vehicle. I asked him to show me the video. So as he showed me the video, my partner arrives on scene. 
And I recognized the car as a, a Kia, but didn't know the actual um, model of it. But my partner knew the model. He said it was a Kia Soul. And so when we watched the video, we seen that it did go west on university. So we aired that out. And my partner said, well, I'm going to go check west and go look for it. And so he went to go look for it. And then maybe about not even two minutes later, I hear him air over the air that he had spotted the vehicle and it was over by, I believe, Wolcott University. And then I, you know, I told him, I said, hey, I'll, I'll head that way and meet with them. As I'm going to get my car to go meet with him, he airs up that um, the vehicle took off east on university. So I knew they were coming my way. So I aired up and let them know that I'm going to be sitting at the, the entrance to the gas station right there at university in Grand Traverse. You had said earlier that there are sometimes some shifts where you have seven or eight officers working to cover the entire city. And I don't know what the staffing levels were like that night, but I can't imagine that they were that much larger. Yeah, yeah, I, th- we, were, we were still kind of you know, low on staffing at that time too. You've got limited resources and they're going after a guy with an AK-47. Okay. To me, that takes even more courage. I mean, and this isn't to, to knock down the courage of other officers, but if you know, you got an army behind you, it's often easier to be brave. It's one thing. Yeah. Right. That, that to me always stuck out because when you told me the story, it was about you and your partner dealing with somebody that, that in many agencies would have been elicited an all out response, but that's not always possible. Right. I do recall when he aired out that he took off on him. And then when I was at the intersection and I saw the suspect's light, it was coming at a high rate of speed. So I knew it was him because then just a little bit behind that, I saw my partner's emergency lights on. So I knew this is the car that he was after, but he was a little bit away from him. So when he aired out that he took off on him, then you got other people that are airing up to come come assist because now it's a pursuit. So we did have other people coming after it was aired out that it was a pursuit. I just want to point out again how, how incredibly brave you folks are because you were on your way to a possible shots fired call. So, right. so, so there are other calls that are going on that we can't ignore, Right. but we've got to respond to this thing too. So you see the vehicle coming. Uh, did you get involved in the pursuit at some point then? Yes. Um, as soon as the suspect vehicle approached the intersection there at GTN University where I was at, he passed me and I was, because my partner was still a little bit ways away, I was able to get in immediately behind him. And then I started calling out the pursuit. I aired out and let them know which way he was traveling. It was East on University. Don't recall if I put out the speed or not. I may have. Um, we're pursuing. And um, then we go to Garland. And Garland is a one way going south. He went through the light at Mason and then went through the light at Garland. But when he went through the light at Garland, he actually like drove around another vehicle and went north on Garland the wrong way. I aired that out and I know my partner was behind me at the time. He was a little bit a ways, but he wasn't too far from behind me. That's where the um, suspect then drove um, west onto fourth and began to slow down. And I'm glad you're, you're describing this the way that you are, because I think it's important for the public to know that when you're in one of these pursuits, there are a whole bunch of things going on. Oh, absolutely. You know, you're having to talk on the radio. People are talking on the radio, but but you have to be cognizant enough to relay your, your location because... 
that's important because if something right. goes south, you need people to know where to come and help you. He starts to slow right. down. What's what's your mindset at that point? When you see the vehicle starting to slow down, what are you thinking are the possibilities that could happen now? What happened was not a possibility. <laughs> um, my thoughts, because I could see him and his his uh, driver's side mirror and he's looking and I can see because of my lights and everything were still, you know, glaring on his mirror. I could see him look at the mirror, look away, look at the mirror, look away like he's watching to see where I'm at and what I'm doing. And I was very, very close to him. My thought process was one, he's either looking where he's going to bail. He's going to stop and he's going to bail on foot. Or he's going to slow down and stop. And as soon as I exit my vehicle, he's going to take off. Therefore, he's going to have um, an advantage on me and I could possibly lose him. So my thought process was to stay as close to his vehicle as possible and see what he does. I knew that they said he had an AK-47, but I'm also looking at my experience over the last, you know, at the time, six years that... um, We've had instances like this where we've had a pursuit or somebody had a gun and then you later found them elsewhere and the the gun's no longer on them. So I guess I could say I got a little complacent thinking that there's a possibility he could have the gun, but then again, he couldn't and he's either going to run on foot or he's going to bail and leave in the car again. But that's important though, because it it explains the response, what you did. And a lot of that stuff takes automatically because it is based upon your training experience. I've been in, been in pursuits before. And uh, when they stop the car, oftentimes what they do is they bail and now you're in a foot pursuit probably. And I'm not, Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm betting that what ended up happening hadn't happened before. It hadn't happened to you before. It hasn't happened to me. And from my knowledge, you know, after this error, somebody could correct me if I'm wrong. But from my knowledge, what happened, the way that it happened to me has not happened at the city of Flint before. It's happened in other ways, but not particularly the way that it did. And if it hasn't happened before, it's very difficult for us to, to develop a response for it under the stress because you've got the stress uh, of a pursuit, which no matter what the reason for the pursuit is stressful, but then you also have the, the stress associated of I'm on a guy that just tried to rob a store and he had a gun and he may not have the gun, but he may have the gun. Right. So you see him watching you. And, and then what did he do? As he's slowing, as he's slowing down to get ready. I'm, I'm also letting dispatch know what's going on. He's, he's slowing down. At that time I grabbed the PA mic and was trying to talk to him through the PA and telling him, you know, driver, stop your vehicle. And when he finally stopped, I seen the door start to open. And my initial reaction was, okay, he's either going to bail or if he has the gun, he might get out. So I'm not going to get out until I know for sure what he's doing. Because if I get out immediately, I don't know what he's going to do. So he opens the door and then immediately gets out and points the AK-47 at my vehicle. And I didn't realize that all of this happened until after I watched the video, because some of it kind of was a little blur. Some things I don't remember happening until I actually watched the video. And I'm like, okay, now I remember that. Because I was trying to figure out at one point why I couldn't react the way that we're trained to react, which is, you know, you immediately grab your gun and you engage. But when he got out and he pointed the um, AK-47 at me and tried to fire, it missed fire. I immediately went to go grab for my gun. And before I could look up to actually raise my gun, because I knew I was going to have to, I'm going to have to shoot through the window. They always tell you if you're going to raise your gun, you know, you you aim where you're going to shoot. 
And so I raised it up, trying to get it out of my thing. But by that time, all I saw was that flash. So I knew he shot. And then you start hearing the shots. So I couldn't even get my gun out. And all I could do was just try to make myself as little as possible and get into that little space in between the computer and the printer and our, our center console where our radio was at and stuff. And I was still trying to get my gun out. My hand was so bruised for the longest after that because I was still trying to get my gun out through this whole process. And I couldn't because when he started shooting, I leaned over and I couldn't, my gun wasn't accessible to where I could get it out because it kept hitting the stand the printer sits on. Did that seem like an eternity? It did. It did. It's like, geez, oh, peace. how big is that magazine and where is everybody else? Right. Also, I could hear the sound of um, the gunfire. I could hear the sounds of the bullets, you know, hitting the vehicle, the pinging sound. I could hear glass breaking. I could smell the gunpowder. It was an experience that I've never felt before, never want to feel before. And I explain this when I'm teaching um, mental health. I teach mental health in the academy. And I explain now that I know how people who are schizophrenic, how they have all these different voices in their heads, because I had about 10 voices in my head saying 10 different things about my kids, my family, you know, my boyfriend, people at work and everything was just going through my head, but it was all my voice because I'm, and I'm sitting there also praying that please don't let this be the way that I go. Don't let this be the way that I die. Then all of a sudden the sound of gunfire stopped and I was terrified to look up because I knew my partner was fairly closely behind me. And I was afraid. I was like, I don't know if he's going to be right there. Is he going to come and try to finish me off? What's going on? I looked up a little bit and I could see the suspect. I could see the back of him running away from the scene. And so I sat there for, I got back down for a second and I'm still trying to process everything like this. This just happened. And then I'm like, oh, God, is my partner dead? Is he is he injured? Is he hurt? So as I look up again, I can see my partner coming up in my my side mirror and he opened the door. And of course, he asked if I was okay. Have you been shot? I said, I don't know if I if I have. I don't feel it. Same thing with him. I asked if he was okay. He said he was fine. Then I find out that he engaged in exchange of uh, gunfire with the suspect. But we didn't know at the time what happened to the suspect. At that point, that's when other officers were showing up and he aired out to dispatch and let them know which way the mail ran and so forth. So we had officers go over to, I think it was on, um, they said he ran south towards the next block over, which I believe was Lyon, Lyon's Place or Lyon Street or something like that. And that's where they found the vehicle. And him and I are sitting there trying to process it all and still make sure we're okay and everything. And then we have, I believe it was our lieutenant airs out. I I believe she was a sergeant at the time, but she, um, now she's a lieutenant, but she aired out that um, they need an ambulance for a male who has a gunshot wound to his elbow or his arm or something. And we with him and I looked at each other and we like high five because- you know, he, he actually got, you know, he actually got him. And I believe what my partner did is not only saved my life, but it stopped this male from continuing to shoot at us. I believe my vehicle got hit. We initially thought it was three times, but after looking at everything, it was hit four times. And there was two bullet holes that were kind of in the same area on the hood that went, one went just above where the windshield wiper is at and hit there. And the other one went through 
and stopped at the firewall. So those two bullets, by the grace of God, stopped right there and didn't come through because they would have hit me if they would have went straight through. Another one hit my front driver's side rim, and it was there was a bullet that was still stuck in there. And then the other one went through my driver's side door, went on an angle and went out the driver's side door, the, the frame of it. And had that would have went straight across, it would have got me either in my hip or my, my side. So I was... Uh, pretty lucky then. But after watching the video and stuff, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? But everything was happening so fast. It was hard to process exactly what was happening. And I did. And what what I, I don't forgive myself for is that when I, when I had the mic, because I had the mic in my hand when he stepped out because I was talking to him on, on the thing to tell him to stop. When he stepped out, I threw the mic down and went to go grab for my gun when he stepped out to fire at me. Well, when he started firing at me on the video, and you have to listen real well, but you could hear me air out that we were being shot at. But unfortunately, I grabbed the wrong mic. I grabbed the PA mic and not the radio mic. So they did not know that we were actually being fired upon until my partner was able to, in fire, was able to tell them where he was at and then let them know that, you know, shots were fired. And then I aired out and let them know after that, that my car had been been hit and my partner's car got hit once, I believe, on the door. I think it's important for our listeners to understand important thing you said there is. I didn't remember this until I watched the video. Right. And if I would have come to you before you watch a video and asked you about the event, there would likely have been things that you left out. Right. And too often people think that that's because you're trying to hide something, but it's because they don't have an understanding of how the human brain works, especially under stress. I mean, the memory gaps, uh, the, the time distortion, you know, things either speed up or they slow down and all these things are going on. Man, I just what you have to do under those conditions, I think, and what you did. And I don't like the term that you use when you said I don't forgive myself because it's easy in hindsight to go back and look at these things. Man, I should have done this or I should have done that. But I think it sounds like you handled yourself in an exemplary fashion. So they ended up catching a bad guy, right? Yes. He's wounded from your partner. I kind of want to focus now on the aftermath and not the court proceedings and all that. I'm talking about the aftermath as it involves you. What type of effect has this incident had on you personally? It has a huge effect. Um, I was off of work for approximately a month and the department was really, really good about getting me and my partner, whoever was involved, assistance with uh, speaking with a psychiatrist and stuff and um, Dr. Gardner's who they hooked us up with immediately. And I saw him like every week all the way up until I believe it was middle of September. Then we dropped it down to every two weeks. And then November 16th was the last session I had with him. Talking about it at first, I couldn't talk about it without crying. It brings me back to the point that at that particular time, I could have lost my life. My daughter could be without a mother. My sons could be without a mother. You know, my parents could be without a daughter. A lot of emotions. Um, it's changed me as in I'm more aware of my surroundings. I'm more cautious. I've done a couple traffic stops since then, but only because I've had people that have almost T-boned me by accidentally hitting me, you know, going through a light or whatever. But other than that, I don't initiate traffic stops right now. I'm still not comfortable with it. I'm sure 
Eventually, I will. I've had a couple traffic stops with some of my rookies that I've been training. I've had times where we've had people just immediately step out of their car and my anxiety level goes up. I I feel like I, I can't breathe. It's like everything just stops. And because I'm picturing that person coming out and shooting. So every time somebody opens their door or goes to step out of their car, I think they're going to come and shoot. The likelihood of it happening again is slim. Doesn't mean it won't. But that response is involuntary. It's not it's not something you're causing to happen. It's something that's happening to you. Right. People may criticize uh, officers who overreact or, or what they feel is an inappropriate response. But that response is because you're human. And you had right. something that that's your defense mechanism that's hardwired into you responding. But you talk to a professional. Right. You, you told me that that has helped you a ton. Yes. To, to move along. But you've also taken your experience and you're sharing it with others. And you also told me that that has helped you as well. And if I'm not mistaken, you're sharing some of that experience in the basic police academy. Correct. How has that helped you out through this process? Talking about it is is still therapy. Some people criticize and be like, well, how, how does that help you out? But but talking about it helps. I don't know how to explain how it helps, but I, I can actually freely talk about it without getting upset, without tearing up, stuff like that. And I think the, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, people criticizing. There was some criticism from some coworkers, from some people from other agencies that, well, I would have did this. I would have did that if that would have happened. And I can tell you from firsthand experience with this. No matter how much training you have, no matter how much they drill in your head in a scenario like that, what you're supposed to do, when that time comes, you think you know what you're going to do, but it's totally different. And like in roll call, sometimes we'll watch videos and our supervisors will say, you know, you know, we're not here to Monday morning quarterback somebody, blah, blah, blah. What, what would you guys have done in this situation? What do you think the officer did wrong or whatever? And my response since then is... I'm not going to comment because I don't know how I'm not going to judge anybody else, how they react in a certain situation, because I know that in my situation, no matter how hard or how much training someone else has had, I don't care if it was a tactical guy, you never know how you're going to act until you're in that position. I think maybe the more appropriate question to ask would be, what are some things we could do in this situation instead of what would you do? Well, what I think we could do, what would be some appropriate responses? And and then the other part, too, is that perhaps we stop as a profession thinking that there's always just one way of responding to something in cases that there, there are multiple appropriate responses. But I do have one more question about this incident. How has that incident affected Dion? Because you can tell me. You can tell me that it's all business when you guys are, or you're clocked in or you're at the police academy and all that, but I can't help but think that it had a big impact on him as well. Yeah, it, it did. It had a huge impact on him. He doesn't like to really talk about it, doesn't really like to hear about it. Dion's um, a pretty personal person. He doesn't like show his feelings a lot. He holds things in, so... It's hard to drag things out of him, but he doesn't like to talk. And I totally understand it. Same thing with my boyfriend who's an officer. He doesn't like to talk about it. He doesn't want to hear about it. He doesn't want to relive that that night. So I totally get it. Our um, captain had put in for myself and my partner that was involved in this to be rewarded. I think it's the 100, it was the, the 100 Club ceremony. And 
my boyfriend didn't want to go and my son didn't want to go. But my daughter-in-law took his place and went. I totally understand why they didn't want to um, attend it. And again, we, we haven't really talked about it. So and I, and I don't bring it up to him. I don't force him to or anything like that. Same thing with my daughter. You know, my daughter handled a different way when I talked to her. I didn't talk to her about it for a couple of days, but I wanted her to know what was going on and why I wasn't going to be at work for a little bit or whatever and why I was so secluded. Because after that incident happened, I don't, didn't really leave my house for almost two weeks. I was scared to leave. And so I explained to her and she was uh, 13 at the time. And she's like, oh, she said, I said, are you, are you okay? And she's like, what? I'm glad you're alive. And then she said, are we still going shopping tomorrow? <laughs> so, you know, they, they handle things, you know, right. different. So. I think it's funny that earlier I asked the question as a mom, were you worried about your son? And I didn't ask the question, you know, your son being worried about his mom. I guess that's, that, that's an, an appropriate question I should have asked. I don't know. You know, that would maybe <laughs> something to ask him and maybe another podcast or something, yeah. talk to him about it. But he uh, he's very supportive of me and as, as well as I am him. And we both know that we both can handle ourselves out here. So we talked about it with uh, Andy Oblad, the unseen victims of these events. And oftentimes on the law enforcement side, the unseen or behind the scenes victims are the family members because right. it does have an impact on them. Again, we have to take our hats off to the, the families of our first responders because they also sacrifice. And right. that sacrifice uh, isn't just missed games, missed birthdays, missed Christmases. It's that worry that comes along with what could happen. And then when something does happen, they have to deal with it just as much as our first responders do. Right. But Maria, I want to thank you for talking about this. When you and I met, I remember very clearly you coming up uh, at break and, and you giving me a brief synopsis of what was going on. And then we were able to talk about it later. And I told you that it made an impact on me. And I said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but I want to be I want to find a way for you to be able to share your story. And so this presented itself. I appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about it. I appreciate it. I thank you guys a lot. Another session of therapy for me today. <laughs> yeah, well, it may not have seemed like it in the uh, in, in the startup, but we are professionals, not professional psychiatrists or psychologists. But <laughs> I, I again, I'm humbled and I'm in awe of the bravery that our first responders show over and over again. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Andy Oblad because it's something he said and something Officer Reed said that has stuck with me is I went towards the fire. That is something that is foreign to me and I commend the officers who do that, that, that are brave enough to say, you know what, I went towards where the shots were coming from because that takes an immense amount of bravery. So thank you so much for keeping the city of Flint safe and especially if you would keep an eye on the east side where my parents are at I would appreciate yes <laughs> I wrote the address down so I have it Thank you so much listen if you guys have a story that you would like to tell we want to hear from you we want uh, others to be guests with us on between the lines and you can email us at between the lines at virtualacademy.com you can go to our website you can hear all past episodes uh, you can get our email address podcast providers all those sorts of things we have brand new episodes every Every Tuesday between the lines with virtualacademy.com. Officer Reed, it has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you, and I'm so glad that uh, you're able to, to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me.